Okay, good morning. All right, just like we do, we've been doing the last several weeks. It seems like I, I uh, start off with a, an informal survey of sorts. Could I see a show of hands for those of you that are familiar with the practice known as the altar call? You all know what the altar call is? Yes, several of you. Good. Okay. Uh, is there anyone brave enough to let us know whether or not this was the means in which they first publicly professed their faith through some sort of altar call? Okay, a few of you. Good. Uh, well, well, I don't remember doing it specifically. I first uh, confessed my belief in Jesus as a young boy, and I, and I did so to my mother. Uh, I confessed to her. And, and at the time, uh, we weren't attending the Baptist churches, which is where I became familiar with the practice of the altar call. And let me tell you, when I first became aware of what uh, the process was, it terrified me. Because uh, here's how it works if you're not familiar. And, and to be honest, I don't know if this is the way they still do it in the Baptist church, uh, but this is how they did it when I was at the Baptist, the entire time I was with the Baptist church. And I, I attended multiple Baptist churches. I went to a Baptist seminary, but I digress. The practice involved a worship service similar to what we do week in and week out here at our church. There was a sermon. And then after that sermon, the preacher always gave anyone in the congregation that day the opportunity to come forward during the hymn that we were going to sing, and that hymn could have been Just As I Am, it could have been uh, 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 all to, I Surrender All was another good one that, uh, that was sung during that time. And you were given the opportunity to come forward during that, that hymn, uh, either for the first time to publicly profess your faith in Jesus or come forward to join the church and become a member. Okay, so either way, this involves some sort of public action. Now, if you wanted to, when you joined the, the church, you could also publicly rededicate your life to Christ. That was a, a component of it too. Now, I remember I was just starting high school uh, because we had just moved, my family and I, we just moved to Atlanta. We were attending a Baptist church and, and somehow I missed the memo, but my family decided we were going to join the church this particular day. And during the hymn, we as a family went forward. And in my head, I was like, what, in the, what, what are we doing? What's happening? <laughs> Why are we going forward? And I remember getting to the front, and my dad was very weepy. Uh, uh, this was not unusual for people who were going to the front during this time, during the altar call, because they were making a life-changing decision or a life-altering decision sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes they were just joining the church, which, to be fair, can also be life-altering. But again, my whole family, we were, all, we were all Christians. We were just joining the local church, which we'd been attending since we moved to town. But nevertheless, my dad was weepy because my dad was always weepy. <laughs> like if you ever called on my dad, dad, will you pray? It, he inevitably would start weeping always and forever. He was always crying. Uh, and I loved him for it. Uh, and because he was crying, I started crying. <laughs> I don't know why I was crying, but I knew I, I should cry. So, so we, we, we let the church know we were joining the church. And just to be safe, I have, may have thrown in there, I'm rededicating my life to Jesus too, just to try and explain for some of the weepiness. Now, all that to say is not to make light of it at all. I have many friends who publicly professed their faith in Jesus for the first time through the altar call. And the idea is based on the idea that the scriptures tell us in Romans 10.9, maybe you're familiar with this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the altar call was a measure of, uh, was our means of allowing you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You're sealing the deal at that point, so to speak. And this is why the Baptist church at every single service gave people the opportunity to do this. 
there, there, uh, there, there was an expectation that if the gospel is being preached, people will be saved. And, and in that respect, th that's something I, I really like about this, this idea. We should expect lives to be changed every time we preach the gospel. Having said that, Every Baptist church I ever attended uh, included this as a part of their service, and they always listed it in the order of service as an invitation. So you had sermon, you had, uh, uh, you know, hymn of thanksgiving, and all, all kinds of things, and at the very end, an invitation. Now, why did they call it an invitation? Because the church was inviting you to come forward and, and make your decision to follow Jesus Christ known. An invitation to confess with your mouth, as it says in Romans 10 and 9, that Jesus is Lord. An outward expression, an outward expression of something you believe in your heart, a reality in your heart. And, and this sort of practice, again, I, I believe had very good intentions, does have very good intentions, perhaps though it has met, left uh, many of us with an unintended image of what it looks like when we come to faith. When we categorize it as an invitation, Perhaps it creates in our mind an image that we can liken to other instances uh, where we are being invited to something, all right? Let's say it's a, it's a wedding. Perhaps you get an invitation for a wedding in the mail. Very nice gesture, always to receive uh, an invitation. Uh, love, we always love to be included, so we get an invitation. You'll, you'll see that there's a stamped, stamped envelope inside the invitation, and it says, uh, yes, I would like to come, and I would uh, like to bring a plus one, and I would like the chicken. Okay, and that's uh, that's uh, I like having options, right? Uh, so again, unintentionally, I think this notion of inviting people to come to Jesus, while certainly hospitable and polite and not pushy, might leave us with the impression that well, well, I've got choices, I've got choices, and, and if I don't come today, maybe I'll come tomorrow, and if I do come, I would like the chicken, right? <laughs> So we're in the series right now that we're calling The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, and I'd like to take a couple of weeks to talk about the central figure, if I can use that expression for a moment, of the Christian faith, that person being, of course, Jesus Christ. And again, for the moment, let's, let's tease out the idea of the invitation, uh, but let's switch it around. Rather than being invited to make a confession, sometimes we think of it as we are doing the inviting. We are inviting Jesus to come into our hearts. Now, some of you may have a testimony where you recall the day where you invited Jesus into your heart, and please hear me, I'm not knocking that at all. We respond to what we understand in the moment, and to many people in the moment, this is what it seems like, that I'm making a, a life-changing decision, and I want to invite Jesus to, to, to be in my, in my heart. So what does it mean when we say that? If I'm inviting Jesus into my life, what am I asking Jesus to do exactly? What, what do you suppose the sentiment behind the invitation is? What are you asking Jesus to do exactly when you invite him into your heart? Any ideas or any thoughts on that? What are you inviting Jesus into your heart when you do so, when you make that exclamation or expression? Transform us. To transform us. I'm inviting Jesus to come into my heart, to come into my life and change me, to transform me. Yeah? Okay. Someone else? Anyone else? Personal experience or just to be the Lord of your life, okay? You're inviting him in not just, uh, not just because you're trying to be hospitable, but you're expecting some sort of change as a result of him being in your heart or in your life, right? Good. Someone else? Anyone else? These are good answers, great answers. Any thoughts? Good. Okay, it's not, again, just an invitation for him to enter your life or to save you from sin, 
right? But it's an invitation for him to become Lord of your life, all right? Now, this is what I want to look at today. And again, I'm going to take a couple of weeks on this one. And uh, I should I should mention as an aside, uh, my calendar got a little jumbled up. I was originally scheduled to preach at Music Row uh, back in September, and, and Stacy said, hey, can we bump that to October? And I, I normally don't like to miss this class more than a couple weeks in a row. Uh, and so when he moved me to October, I said, sure, it's open. Uh, but I forgot that we have also fall break in there, and then I was also scheduled to preach the week after that. So three weeks, I'm going to be gone. I'm sorry, but I've got some great people lined up to, to fill in for me while I'm gone. So please uh, come here and meet, and I'll tell you all about them uh, in the weeks ahead. So I'm going to get to part two of this particular lesson in, a, in maybe three or four weeks, okay? But again, what we're going to look at today is just the question of who is Jesus? Because when we talk about Jesus and, and how many titles... That, that he has that, that, that are in the scriptures. There are so many of them that the Bible gives us in reference to Jesus. We want to take a look at at least a handful of them this week and in and, uh, and the weeks to come. Uh, when, we discussed, when we discuss what we're doing when we invite Jesus into our hearts, one of the things often mentioned is, is that he not just be our Savior, which again, we'll talk about that, but that we want him to be Lord of our lives too. Uh, we invite him to be Savior and Lord. Now, let's consider this notion that Jesus' lordship in our lives uh, comes by way of invitation. Now, this might come as a shock to some of you, and uh, maybe for some of you it won't, because I remember teaching this in a Wednesday night uh, series that we did a, a couple of years ago, right in the middle of COVID, as a matter of fact. So this could be brand new for all of you, because I think there were eight people in the room at the time, but, <laughs> but that's okay. I, I love this material, uh, and hopefully you'll see where I'm going with this. Uh, might shock you to know that um, maybe the Bible doesn't always categorize it as an invitation. So let's turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, starting in, uh, in uh, uh, verse 29. Here's the context of what's going on here. Paul is standing in Athens in the midst of the Aragopagus, uh, which was also known as Mars Hill. I'm sure you've heard of Mars Hill. Uh, this was an outdoor courtroom of sorts, which was one of the highest courts in Greece for civil criminal and, and religious matters. And even under Roman rule in the time of the New Testament, Mars Hill remained an important meeting place where, where philosophy and religion and, and law, it was all discussed here at Mars Hill. And it's in this sermon here where Paul is making a, a gospel presentation, and this would have been during his second missionary journey, and he's specifically addressing the idolatry of the Greeks. Okay, And, and he says to them, this is Acts 17, 29 and 30, Paul says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, uh, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands, he commands all people everywhere to repent. He, he's telling the Athenians, don't, don't think of Jesus in the manner that you do your idols that, that come from the imagination of men. God has been patient. He's been long-suffering with the people in this world over the ages and in times past. He overlooked these things. He's a very patient God. But now, now something has changed, Paul is saying. Those days are over. Now what's he doing? God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. You see what's going on here? This, this sort of turns the image of an invitation on its head. So, so tell me this, why would Paul categorize your coming to faith as a command? Why would Paul 
categorized it as a command. Does this, does this make you feel uncomfortable a little bit? Especially, you know, again, and I'm not knocking what we're talking about invitation. This is what we've seemed to kind of categorize. We invite Jesus into our hearts. But, but this here, Paul is saying, is a command. Why would Paul call it a command? You have a thought or hunch about that? Yeah. Because Jesus said that was the, the when he was asked what was the greatest commandment, he said, to love the Lord your God. Okay, when Jesus was asked by, by the, one of the, the leaders of the law or the teachers of the law, what's the greatest command? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And he said, the second is like it, you know, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, Jesus is issuing a command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it, this is not without precedent that Paul is saying command here. And do you remember what we talked about last week for those of you that were here? Uh, for those of you that weren't here, we framed, we were talking a little bit about the fall the fall of man in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden. And uh, we, we, we framed it in, in two ways. The first way we framed it was in terms of what God did in the Garden. That is, he provided Adam and Eve with a measure of provision and protection. Do you remember we were talking about this last week? Provision and protection. Provision. Here's what you can eat. And by eating this, you can flourish. You will flourish. By eating any of this, you, this is how you will flourish. But if you eat this, you'll die. So don't do it. So don't do it. It was provision and protection. How did the serpent frame it? Do you remember this from last week? How did the serpent frame it? Simply as a restriction. Did God actually say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? It's all restriction. And to this day, we we still think of God's command sometimes as, why is God restricting me? All right? He... He took God's command and, and he twisted it just, just that much. Did God actually say, yeah, yeah, Dean? And, and the first thing, that the first command that Jesus gave was repent. Repent. That was the first thing. That was the first command that Jesus gave was repent? Yeah. In which context? In just... It, well, I just remember I was reading this yesterday. An observation that was the first, first thing he, that, that when, when Jesus was, was revealing the first thing that Jesus said was repent when he was revealing himself. Even I'll even I'll even one better than that uh, when John the Baptist came on the scene, when uh, when he was the one to prepare the way, prepare the way of the Lord. Uh, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He said, "Repent, repent." Okay, uh, good observation there. So he he took he, the the devil took it, the serpent took God's command and and and, and and just twisted it that much, and, and suddenly it's rest- restriction. No, uh, God isn't allowing me to be me now, right? And this is so relevant to the culture we're in right now, uh, where where we feel like, ah, I, I just want to be me. Why, why, why can't God just let me be me? Well, sometimes when when we are ourselves, we, we're sinful, and it's not good. And it's not it's not the things that uh, that we want. And I and I uh, especially as we talk about issues of identity, uh, we, we think, well, is there anything wrong with me just wanting to be me? Well, unless it's contrary to the way in which you were designed, and if the way you, in which you were designed is is something that you're working against, there it will end up poorly. It'll end up bad. It will end up to to all kinds of things. So God, God is not telling you to not eat of something because, because he's just trying to be mean or he's just trying to present you with restrictions. 
He's saying, don't eat of this because it runs contrary to your design. So he tells you not to eat of it for your protection. That's what he told Adam and Eve. So when, when Paul said God commands people everywhere to repent, why does he do that? It's a means of, it's a means of protection. Because repenting will save your life. Okay, all throughout uh, their, their growing up years, and even still today, there, there's, there's something that we have to emphasize with our kids when we discipline them. Yes, we certainly want them to say they're sorry when they do something wrong, right? I mean, just that alone sometimes seems like a miracle, just to get your kids to say, I'm sorry, all right? Will you please say you're sorry and acknowledge what you've done here? Because when they say they're sorry, they're acknowledging what they did was wrong. So that's good. That's good. But sometimes, let's just be honest here, they'll, they'll say they're sorry, uh, not actually because they are, because that maybe it'll be a means of sidestepping the consequences, right? I just don't want you to take away my phone. So yes, I'll say whatever it is you want me to say, right? Sorry, sorry, sorry for this, sorry for that. So for us as parents, it's not just that we want them to say they're sorry. What else do we want them to do along with saying that they're sorry? What else do we want them to do? Change. We want, to, we want them to actually change their behavior, okay? Hopefully they understand what they've done to the point where there's a change of behavior. We don't want them to do whatever it is that they're engaged in uh, ever again. Whatever behavior it is that they're doing, we just, don't ever do that again. That's what we want. And this, my friends, is what you call repentance. This is what repentance is. Repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry, though it does involve that, right? Repentance is saying you're sorry. It's, it's Remember, we just talked about this a moment ago. It's a verbal expression. Saying I'm sorry is a verbal ex expression of something you believe in your heart. And if you believe in your heart, the verbal expression is, is accompanied by a change in behavior. All right, so, so bring it full circle here. When Paul tells the Athenians, and you and me for that matter, to repent, he's telling them, he's commanding them to turn from what they're doing and head the other direction. For what purpose? To save your life, because this is going to save your life. I told you last week that I have dogs too, and, and I'll often yell at the dogs when they're, when they're doing something they're, they're not supposed to be doing. If they get out of the house and, and outside the fence and they're heading towards the street in, in traffic, uh, am I going to invite them to come back into the house? No. Is it Ruby? Jasper with two dogs, Ruby and Jasper. Thank you, Tracy, for great names for the dogs. Ruby and Jasper, like two precious stones, right? So I'm going to command them quite sternly to whip it back around and come into the house. And I'm commanding you, I'm commanding you, dog, to come here because I'm, I'm interested in saving your life. I'm interested in preserving your life. Now, now, Paul has told the Athenians that it's their obligation to repent, to confess Jesus as Lord, because to follow any other command, to follow the, the command of your own heart even, will lead to death. If you follow any other command other than the one of, of Jesus Christ himself. Now, it might be easy for us to read this passage in Acts that, that Paul is making the, the command. Okay, okay, Paul is the one issuing this command. But what we have to make sure we understand is, is that we know that it's not Paul talking here ultimately, right? If you're an Athenian listening to this, you might bristle and say, command? Paul, who are you to command me to do anything, Right? And Paul, in not so many words, is saying, you have an obligation to believe this. You are obliged to believe this. How so? Let's go back to, to chapter 17 here, 31. First part of 31, it says this, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is, uh, this is verse 31 now. Uh, because we're, we're exploring the validity of the claim here. 
He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So here, Paul is saying, you're not obligated to repent because I say so. You're obligated to repent because God says so. And who is God? Well, God is, is the supreme authority. And if you're the supreme authority, you are the supreme judge. If you're the supreme authority, you're the supreme judge. And God has fixed a day on which he'll judge the world. He's fixed a day on which every careless word, every thoughtless act will be judged. Every last person is subject to this judgment. And this is really important here. We're talking about Jesus here, right? We're, we're asking who Jesus is. And so he has also appointed a judge who will preside over this judgment. And this judge is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the judge. We're talking about Jesus today and all his titles and all his many roles. Jesus is the judge. Okay, so now imagine you're one of these Athenians and listening to Paul, and he's telling you to repent. It's not an invitation, it's a command. And so you ask Paul, says who? Says who? And Paul explains to you that God says so because he's appointed Jesus as the judge who will judge all of humanity. And if you're an Athenian, your next question might be, okay, how do I know that Jesus really is that judge? We believe the idea in a deity, and we can even get on board with that deity being the supreme judge, but how do we know he appointed Jesus as that judge? And this is how we might answer the Athenians here. What gives Jesus the right to serve as judge? Because he's the son of God. I thought I had a slide there for that. I don't. Jesus is, another title, the son of God. Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about that for a minute or two. Have you ever contemplated what that means? Jesus is the Son of God. What do you take that to mean? That's, I'm going to admit, this is a title we use all the time, Jesus, Son of God. What do we mean by that exactly, though? When you're all of a sudden pressed with the idea of, like, define what you mean by Son of God, you're like, oh, who's got an idea? Offspring, heir, heir to the kingdom. Is uh, This is a trick question. I'm just going to throw it out there right now. Okay, trick question. Is Jesus the offspring of God? Yes? His relationship in the Trinity. Jesus' relationship in the Trinity. This, this, I'm going to tell you, this is, a, this is a question on the ordination exam for the Presbyterian Church in America. Okay? <laughs> And there's this concept that they call the eternal generation of the Son. Eternal generation. And you know what that means? I will tell you. <laughs> that Jesus is, uh, Jesus does come forth of the Father, but he does so eternally. So in other words, yes, he proceeds, Jesus proceeds from the Father, but there never was a start date. Like there wasn't a date in which, uh, okay, now Jesus is born, for instance. No. He just eternally was so, eternally proceeds from the Father. And again, it's sort of a thing that we have to, like the Trinity, try and wrap our, or, or how we say Jesus is fully God and fully man. It's something like, I've never seen that on earth. No, you haven't. You know, and it's, there's a bit of a mystery to it. So yes, he, Jesus does proceed from the Father, but he does so eternally. So in other words, there wasn't a start date to his being the Son of God. He just always was. Okay, so, so what does this mean? What, is, what does being the son mean? Again, let's, let's think about it in a modern context. Uh, I have one of my sons here today. He's, uh, Jack is my son, and what does that mean? What rights and privileges does, does Jack being my son afford him? 
all, all kinds of things, right? It affords him protection. Uh, it, it affords him food and shelter and, uh, and education, at least in the immediate sense. I have an obligation to provide all those things for him. So, so at least at this stage in Jack's life, the metaphor might break down a bit. I am Jack's father. I am Jack's authority. Okay, now let me ask you this. Does Jesus submit to the Father, or does, does the Father have authority over Jesus? Before you answer that, let me ask it another way. If I tell my son Jack, go clean your room, what should Jack do at that point? Go clean the room. I'm glad we all agree on that. Okay? He should clean his room. Why should he do it? In the immediate sense, he should clean his room because I said so, right? Enough said. Now, in an ideal world, why would he go clean his room? Because it's good for him. Because he sees the benefit of it. Because he sees how it fits within the order of the household. Right? <laughs> I hate that he's put in the spotlight here. He's really a good boy, and so is his son, uh, my, my, my other son, Logan. They're both very good boys. Because, again, he, he, he wants to because he understands the benefits of doing so. So... Was there ever a conversation between God the Father and God the Son that went something like this? Well, the world needs saving, so Jesus, you're going to have to go do it. Why? Because I said so. Was there ever a conversation like that? No, of course not. No. The Bible teachers, uh, Bible teachers all over the ages refer to this as the covenant of redemption. All right? It's, a, it's a, another lofty expression here, on, on, also on the ordination exam. The covenant of, of redemption. Remember, we talked a little bit about last week about what a covenant is, and it's a pact or an agreement between two or more parties. And in this covenant, the covenant of redemption, it's an agreement between the members of the Trinity. And in this agreement, Jesus's part was to undertake the mission of redemption at the behest of the Father. But this wasn't an act uh, of Jesus that was undertaking, that he was undertaking because he was told, because I said so by the Father, right? Philippians 2, again, one of my favorite verses all time, uh, I love this passage of scripture because it has just about the whole gospel inside of it. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So, so already Paul is telling us here, this is the mindset of Christ. This is how Christ thinks. And you should think like this too. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he was equal with the Father. Equal with the Father. He was in the form of God, but he didn't grasp it and tell us, tough luck. Instead, he, he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see this? Though we read words like obedient, right, which would suggest inferiority in, in, a, in a power structure, Jesus was equal with God and set that equality aside, and willingly took on the form of a servant. You see, he willingly placed himself under the authority of the Father. My son Jack doesn't always willingly place himself under my authority. He does what I ask, ask him to do because, because I'm in charge. But he's, again, a great, great boy, and so is his son Logan, or my, my son Logan. <laughs> They're very good boys. But, but this is the heartbeat of Christianity, to do something not because you have to, but because you willingly, joyfully give yourself to someone else. Jesus did what his father asked because he willingly put himself in that position. Do you see the difference? In terms of position, in terms of authority, in terms of his, his godliness, Jesus, the Son of God, is equal 
with God. We read this in, in Colossians just this morning, Colossians uh, 1.15. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, okay, that makes us question one more time. Wait a minute, firstborn? We, we just got through exhausting what, the, what, what being a son means. And now that he's eternally generated from the son, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a start date to this. And now you're saying firstborn. What does that mean? What does it mean? Does, does it mean that he was the first thing born in all creation? No. It says the firstborn of all creation. That means he is the one over everything that's been created. Think of it in terms of position, in terms of culture at the time. To be the firstborn meant that you, you, had, you had the authority. You had the, the, the privilege of being the firstborn son, which entitled you to everything uh, that your father had. Everything that was created was created through him. So anything that has a beginning had a beginning because of Jesus Christ. Everything that was created had to be created through him. Not that he was created, quite the contrary. So back in, again, Paul's time, the idea of being the firstborn carried with it all that, that, all that privilege, all that position, all that authority that went along with, the, with being the firstborn son. And so that's what he's talking about when he says the firstborn over all creation, being, having authority over all of it. This is a, a 115 and following, where it says, for him, uh, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. Or, now, what is this describing here? All right, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, in a word, who is Jesus? God. Jesus is God. Nothing, nothing less than fully God. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus is equal with God, both here and in Philippians 2. The fact that he's the son of God isn't diminutive. It's not a diminutive title in the way that perhaps you might think of my relationship with my son. Oh, he's lesser because he's my son. Not so in these passages. It's recognizing all the privilege, all the authority that goes along with being in that position. So any questions at that point? Any questions at that point so far? Do we understand what we mean by son of God? and what we mean by firstborn. Everyone good? Yeah, Dave. So, Jesus' relationship to the Father mm -hmm. was different while he was on earth in revealing those of the Father, but before that, the relationship was different. It was just yeah, so Dave is, Dave is asking, was Jesus' relationship different uh, while he was here on earth? In, a in, in one manner of speaking, yes, because that, just like Philippians 2 just described to us, he set aside, he was, he was seated at the right hand of God, you know, before he was God incarnate, and he set that aside. And it's, uh, we talked a little bit about last week uh, that the, the hymn, the, Christ the Christmas hymn, uh, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. And so you think about it, what Jesus did was fully God, came to earth as God incarnate and in a sense veiled himself. And so in a sense that is different, but it's also the, the role that he takes on always because he's fully God, but yet his role and his function within the Trinity is to interact, intercede with and for man. And, and the only way that fully God can do that without, remember what we also talked about last week, being blown away by the glory of God is to veil it in a sense. So in that respect, their, their relationship has never been different, never was different. But his role, in fact, his, his authority, his position of authority, he set some of that uh, um, 
authority aside, so that position aside, so that he could uh, interact with us as as a as a as a man, fully man. Yeah, Trudy. What he made me think of when he said that was, it, like in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he said, mm-hmm. um, "Father, you know, you know, take this cup from me. Mm-hmm. I will be done, right? Not mine." You know, which makes it sound there like it's a different different dynamic. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, Trudy's pointing out the fact that uh, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, Jesus uh, cried out, uh, uh, "Father, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will." It's it, that again. There's a, there's probably never been a more beautiful picture of fully God, fully man. And so, if you ever question the the validity of was Jesus really fully man, the Garden of Gethsemane says yes. You know why? He didn't like pain. <laughs> He, he didn't like he didn't like the idea of of, uh, of the father uh, in a sense turning his face from him on the cross. That that's what he that's a beautifully human expression. No, I don't want that. But then also understanding that he is fully God. No other will can be done other than the will of the Father. Uh, and so again, that's just a beautiful picture of that fully God, fully uh, man dynamic. Great, great, uh, great point. Yeah, Todd. Does the role of the Holy Spirit turn everything upside down uh, in terms of his role in the, in the Trinity? Uh, in, in, in the same way that we talk about the, the Son being eternally generated or eternally uh, proceeds from the Father, Holy Spirit too. The Holy Spirit always, always was. We read about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We read about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Now, you have to think about the, old, the, the Holy Spirit in such a way that, uh, and the best way I've heard this described is, is God throughout redemptive history moving his chess pieces around a chess table. And what, what was happening in the Old Testament was that we were preparing uh, history for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so we might think, well, was the Holy Spirit different in the Old Testament? Uh, no, the, the Holy Spirit was always the Holy Spirit. We always, we always need the Holy Spirit for salvation. We always need the Holy Spirit to change someone's heart. But his functions were a little bit different. They appeared to be a little bit different than they were in the New Testament because, again, even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was about the business of moving history in such a way, moving those chess pieces in such a way that prepared us for the arrival of Jesus Christ and ultimately uh, the saving function of the, of the Holy Spirit that we would see more visibly in the New Testament. His function and role always was that. You know, no one's heart changed in the Old Testament without the the, the, the working of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know if that answers your question. Is that does okay? All right. Great questions. Good feedback. I love this. Uh, to the point that my iPad turned off here, and now what do I do? Okay, so we've talked about Jesus, that uh, he's Lord, right? We talked about that. He's, he's God incarnate. He's Lord of our lives, uh, Lord of everything. Now let's talk about one more title with the time that we have left. Uh, we were talking about invitations earlier. And uh, we've heard it said that, that he's Savior and Lord. And we just talked about the Lord part. So let's talk about the Savior part. He's, he's Savior. Now, uh, I know I've told you this before, again, even because I mentioned this in the last time I taught this a couple, couple years ago. It's one of my favorite stories. But uh, for those of you that weren't there, there was one time where, where uh, Tracy and I uh, went to Sonic. And if there's anyone snickering, you already know how this story goes. Uh, this was several years ago before we had uh, children. And we could do things like eat at Sonic. Uh, uh, so Tracy ordered a hot dog, and uh, and she said, "I'll take a hot dog with with ketchup and mustard only." And and then they re- they replied, 
uh, and confirmed her order. You just want ketchup and mustard only, to which she replied, yes, that's correct. And again, talking through the squawk box, it's, you know, you never are confident that they're going to get your order right. So out came the car hop with our order and, and they, uh, we took off her home and we started to divvy up the food once we got home. All right, this is yours. Tracy began to unwrap her hot dog. And as usual, you're checking your order just to make sure they got it right. And uh, she checked her hot dog and yes, they, they nailed it. They nailed it. it. It was ketchup and mustard only. Literally, a bun with ketchup and mustard only in it. I don't know if you know this, but a hot dog ceases to be a hot dog when you remove, you know, the hot dog. Now, at the risk of being accused of comparing Christianity to a hot dog, what is the essence of Christianity? What, what lies at the heart of Christianity? When does Christianity stop being Christianity? When you take the Christ out of Christianity, now, now you've gutted it. It's Christ himself that lies at the heart of what we believe. The whole New Testament, this is what I was just talking a minute ago uh, with, with Todd here, the whole New Testament was written to make and justify the claims of who Jesus is. The whole Old Testament foreshadowed his arrival. And not just his arrival, but, but his role upon his arrival. So think about it. What would we know uh, of, of, of God apart from Jesus Christ? We know about the Trinity, salvation, the resurrection, life everlasting. We wouldn't know any of that apart from Jesus. It was Jesus and his redemption of all of God's people who was the revealer of all these truths. Again, they were, they were concealed in the Old Testament, now revealed in the New. And, and for what we call him, the Bible calls him quite simply Jesus Christ. And we, we read in Acts 17 how Paul is telling the Athenians, again, this is what he told them in Acts 17, 29 to 31, but, but this time let me, let me finish uh, 31. I only gave you half of verse 31 last time. Let's, let's finish it this time. Boom. Here we go. Let's read the whole thing. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the, heart, uh, the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, what that verse is telling us is not just that God gave us Jesus the judge, but that he gave us Jesus Christ. So when you say Jesus Christ, you, you know you're not just saying his first and last names, right? Did you know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name? Does someone know what the title Christ means? Again, this is another one. Son of God, yeah, I know what that means. Do I? Jesus Christ. What does Christ mean? Do you know, do you know what the, Jesus the Christ means? Messiah? Yes, correct. Any other? Because there's a couple of words here that we could use. What? Anointed one, correct. Savior, correct. All right, all these are synonymous with the, with the title Christ. You guys are excellent. A plus, A plus for the day. Okay, all through the Old Testament, uh, uh, when, uh, when prophets spoke of, of the, the, uh, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was to come, they're using the translated word in Greek would have been Christos, which again means anointed one or cho chosen one. And that word, Christos, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. You guys covered all of it. Great job. So when we say Jesus Christ, what we're really saying is Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. Okay, so what does that mean, right? What does the Messiah or Anointed One mean? All through the Old Testament, 
there were literally hundreds of prophetic passages in the Old Testament that referred to the coming Messiah who would deliver the people. Now, ancient Israel throughout uh, uh, um, thought the Messiah or, or the deliverer would be a military leader. But the New Testament revealed something different. The New Testament revealed that, yes, Jesus was a deliverer, uh, but a deliverer that you and I needed much more than a military deliverer. So, so this is what it means when, when Jesus uh, is referred to as the Messiah. It means he's the deliverer. Um, and, and, and what did he deliver us from? What did Jesus deliver us from? Sin and ultimately death. He delivered us from sin and death, a greater foe than any military uh, um, power at the time, previous or, or even now. Paul was telling the Athenians, repent. Repent because there's a judge who's coming to judge your every careless act and word, and the Father's appointed this judge in Jesus Christ. But, but, yes, there's a judge, but he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, why does the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead give us assurance? Because if he raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise you from the dead. Though he passes uh, out judgment, he passes out deliverance too. Okay, you see, we have Christ the judge and Christ the deliverer. We have Jesus, son of God, the Lord, whom we owe everything, every fiber of our being to, and, and, and that's not enough, not nearly enough, but we also have Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the deliverer, who stands between us and the Father and gives us what is required for us to be declared righteous before him. And, and you know, in a manner of speaking, you have to, you have to um, sort of sympathize with the people of the time when they were expecting Jesus to be the Christ, even the disciples up to the day he, he ascended into heaven, they were like, now, Jesus, now, now are you going to come? Because this was the type of deliverer that God had always sent in the Old Testament. They would be oppressed by the enemies of God, and, and, uh, and God would send a judge or a deliverer or someone like Moses, someone like Joshua that could free them from the oppressive reign of terror from whoever. And so, of course, they were like, now? Now are you going to free us from Rome? But again, like we've been saying uh, I feel like I say this all the time. Everything that happened in the Old Testament is a pointer to the new. And so that's why when they were looking for a military leader, they, they were like, just like the old? No, these are pointers. These are pointers to the fact that one day you would be delivered from your biggest oppressor of all, sin and death. And that is what makes Jesus the Messiah, the deliverer, the anointed one, is that he's done uh, what was happening in the Old Testament on, on a such bigger, grander scale one that we needed more, quite frankly. So let me stop there and see if there are any comments or questions or, yes, go ahead, Becca. Oh, you know what I have? I have one thing here too. Watch this. I got another microphone here. Just hold this right there so everyone can hear your question. Hi. I don't hear right anything. There, right there. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Perfect. Hello. Yeah, you're good. Is that working? <laughs> it's, it's getting on the recording. That's okay, that's doing, good. So, so um, all through the Old Testament, there were the prophecies that talked of both the conquering king mm -hmm. that they were looking for and the suffering servant. Mm -hmm. And of course, the suffering servant, y'all know this, suffering servant was what Jesus came as the first time, but his second coming will be as the conquering king. One other thing I want to say that I heard in a, um, a uh, Bible study with um, Christy McClellan mm -hmm. is that the word repentance um, and uh, she did a Luke 15 Bible study that was really good about 
the last um, coin, the last sheep, and then the last son or the prodigal son, who was also called the running father. But anyhow, repent, uh, there were two meanings in Hebrew. One was, of course, the common one we all know about to turn away from whatever you were doing that was wrong. And the other is to allow yourself to be found and brought home. Allow yourself to be found and brought home. So if you look at that, where he says to command, command, command you to repent, allow, I'm commanding you to allow yourself to be found and brought home. What a positive, I mean, it's much more positive than saying, you were bad, be sorry. But it's like, I love you so much. I want you to be found and brought home. Yeah, that's, that's a beautiful picture. Two things. First of all, yes, great observations that uh, uh, the second time that Jesus comes, uh, we're going to see uh, the conquering king is what you said. Uh, to, just to be perfectly clear, Jesus is king, and I, I know you know this, he's king right now. Right now, he's king right now. This, this is... Uh, he is reigning right now, but what we'll see is the consummation of that kingdom when he comes back and he makes all things new again, and, and it's the, the completion of his kingdom. And then the idea of the of the uh, the, the um, uh, allowing yourself to be found, I think what that does is paint for us a picture of uh, justification and sanctification. Uh, justification is is that uh, is what the Father's initiative. The Father does that. The Father finds you. The Father saves you. Sanctification is the part that you are commanded to, to take part in. It's not that God needs our help, uh, but he commands us or tells us, let yourself be found. I'm, yes, yeah, submission. I'm, I'm pursuing you. And I'm coming after you. He's going to find you, but he's also, he's also telling you to, to do something, to take, to take part in this, uh, this transaction as sanctification. He's already saved you, but in terms of being made holy, yeah, now that's your job. Your job, your job is to take part in in the sanctification. It's a, and it's and you can think of it as a as a command. And, and we have something to do. Make your calling and election sure is what we're told. Great, great, uh, great comments. Yeah, someone else thoughts, comments, questions. Yes, ma'am, Debbie. I'm going to give you the little tiny mic if that's okay. And I'm going to so just you can hold that one right there. There you go. Okay. <clears throat> Reading this took me back to when you were talking about the uh, Genesis and uh, between Adam and God. Um, whole repent is, is that, that command. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so you have the protection mm -hmm. um, and then you have the provision mm -hmm. in God's uh, raising Jesus from the dead. So that whole protection and provision kind of comes full circle and relevant back. Yeah, that, and again, that's why I can't get over the fact that I, this is this is what makes me believe the Bible. Things like this is because how how could any mere mortal have thought of things like this and make them work out the way they did? It, it's a, a literally impossible. And the more I contemplate it, the more overwhelmed I am that as far back as the fall in Genesis three, that he's already telling us about the gospel and providing protection and provision. Protection and provision from the fall is what he was giving us in Jesus Christ thousands of years later. And again, we see things like this over and over and over and over again in the scriptures to the point that you're like, I have no choice but to believe this because how else in the world could this, uh, could this have happened this way? Great, great comment. Someone else thought? Yes, sir, Dave. Hold on, hold on. I feel like uh, Phil Donahue. Um, I've been hearing lately from, uh, from some people that I know about they're defining repentance here as 
not an actual turning from your sins and headed a different direction, of course, that wouldn't be perfectly, mm-hmm. but it's they're defining it as just a change of mind, like an intellectual believing that Christ was here, but no action accompanies that because that would involve works. I wonder if you could speak to that. Well, this is exactly what James talks about in, uh, in um, uh, the book of James. Uh, when he talks about faith without works is dead. What does that mean? Faith without works is dead. Does that mean works are required for salvation? What does it mean? It means if you have Christ in your heart or the Holy Spirit, that you will, because of the love for them and wanting to live in obedience, you will automatically do good things. In other words, works, that's right, because of the change that's happened in you, it will automatically produce some sort of fruit. And it's not the fruit that saves you. The fruit is nothing more than the, the evidence, the evidence of an internal Christ. So anyone that would, that would come uh, with the idea of saying, yeah, I've, I've repented and I've therefore gone through a, a change of mind, but there's no action to follow, well, you have to question uh, what's going on there. Uh, because again, uh, it will take the rest of your life uh, to be made holy, right? Uh, you, won't, you won't be perfectly made holy until, until you're on the other side of, of earth. Uh, but it's a process. It's a gradual po- process. Sanctification is a gradual process where each day you're being made more and more like Jesus. Uh, I think it's fair to say that once in a while, yes, there's going to be some some uh, uh, back back. We used to call it backsliding. Yeah, back in the day, right? But the trajectory of your overall faith from from the time that you're saved until the time that you're you're uh, uh, resurrected in Christ is, is should be one a pattern of uh, of increasingly you know more sanctified. Uh, and so if there's never any change in behavior, you really have to question whether or not uh, um, they understand what's, uh, what salvation is. But yeah, it necessarily is accompanied with a, a, a repenting act that goes along with it. You can't uh, say, yes, I, uh, I believe Jesus and I believe everything that he's done for me, and, uh, but I don't believe that brings about any sort of change in me. I, you know, uh, it has to, it has to, it has to bring about some, some change on some level that again, shows a pattern over the course of life of being made more and more holy, being more and more like, uh, like Jesus. Uh, someone else? These are great. You got five minutes for those of you that uh, uh, are uh, needing to go to the, the sermon. Um, and uh, for those of you that still have other questions or anything like that, I'm always glad to entertain those um, um, with, uh, with the time we have left. So, oh, Tree. Yeah, I'll send a note out. I'll send a note out. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for, for who Jesus is. We thank you that he is Lord. We thank you that he is Son of God. We thank you that uh, he not only um, is, is fully God, but he is fully man, and that he gave himself for us as, as man so that we uh, might be reconciled to you. Thank you for that miracle. Thank you for who Jesus is. Help us to uh, help that to be reflected in our lives and help us as we leave here uh, to just... Be so excited about it that we can't help but but, uh, tell everyone we know about uh, the wonders that that Jesus has done for us. Uh, We thank you for him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.